So we all know what time of year it is, and so I thought I'd ask this question. Like, who likes scary movies? Anybody like scary movies? Oh, there's a few of you. I don't know. You're kind of crazy. I hate them. I hate scary music, and I hate them probably because when I was a kid, I watched them. And so I watched a few when I was a kid, therefore I hate them now. One of the ones I watched, I don't know if nobody remembered this in the first gathering. Anybody remember the movies from the 80s called Lady in White? No. It's a good thing. It was terrible. You probably didn't want to watch it. Don't go home and watch it now. But anyway, it was one of those ones that, like, it scared me enough that, like, for, for the rest of my life, I have zero, zero desire to watch scary movies. And I, and I hate them because I, I scare too easily. And if I'm, if I'm watching a scary movie, I mean, there's really only one thing that brings me comfort. And it's just sitting at the movie, just watching and just, it just makes me feel so much better. <laughs> and if you have no idea why I'm doing this, it's because you showed up late. So you should come earlier next time. <laughs> and I'm not even going to tell you why I'm doing this. Oh, good. But don't worry, it's light. It's light mayonnaise. Can you take this so that nobody's looking at this as I preach the rest of the time? Thank you, Steve. There you go. Anyway, today, <laughs> so gross, so gross, today, anyway, back to topic, today we wrap up our series, You're Not the Boss of Me, it's been a five-week series, it's been really helpful for me actually putting it together, I hope it's been helpful for you, but if you're new here, just kind of give you the context as to kind of the thrust of the whole series, where we're headed today and where we've been headed the past four weeks from today is this, this is our subtitle. It's how to say no. This has been kind of a how-to series. We've said that every week. How to say no to the emotions that compete for control. Every single one of us have emotions, whether it's one or two in our lives, that compete for control of our lives. They, they compete for control of our moods, and ultimately they compete for control of what comes out of our mouth. And our mood and ultimately our mouth have a really bad problem of creating some issues for us. They, they, they create damage in relationships and ultimately the, the relationships that are most valuable to us. And Jesus said this, in fact, we looked at the, the verses every week so far, that Jesus said that the things that come out of us, they come out of us because they're already in us. They, they come out of us because they're in our hearts, and they actually, they flow out of our hearts. And eventually they put us at odds with God. And they put us at odds with God because they put us at odds with people, people whom God loves. And so far we've talked about a few. We've talked about guilt and anger and envy. And today I want to talk about one that Jesus actually you may not know this, but Jesus talked a lot about this one. I want to talk to us about how to keep fear from becoming the boss of us. None of us want fear, or we, we might use the word worry or anxiety, to be the boss of us. For some of you, fear has never really been the boss of you. In fact, for some of you, you could probably use a little bit of fear, kind of like this guy. We might have all seen this guy on the freeway at times. He could use a little bit of fear. It's a motorcycle video of a guy doing motorcycle tricks on the highway. There we go. I'm like, <laughs> anyway, this kind of doesn't work if you don't see the video. Uh, anyway, I'm sure you've seen him, but he could use a little bit of fear in his life. But for most people, the element of fear or worry that plagues us, it plagues us from time to time. Or it, it plagues us maybe from relationship to relationship or maybe in a, in a particular environment or area of our life can fear be the boss of us at times. But for some of us, for some of us, it's not just from time to time. For some of us, it's all the time. It's all-consuming. It, it can become paralyzing for us. Fear, as you know, it, 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 it robs us from opportunities in our life. 
Fear interferes in our relationships. It can impact how we parent our children. We're fearful if we parent too hard. What if we parent too hard? What if we don't parent hard enough? And we, we become fearful in our marriages and in our relationships. For some of us, fear just keeps us up constantly. But before we jump into how to keep fear from becoming the boss of us, fear is obviously, at times, uh, it's not a bad thing. Uh, you already knew that, but for, 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 here's the cool thing about fear that I didn't know until this week. Fear is actually a byproduct. I've never really thought about it that way. You may have never thought about it that way. But fear is actually a byproduct of something really awesome. Uh, something that is so important that none of us would want to give up this ability so that we would no longer have fear. Fear is actually the byproduct of our ability of, as human beings to collect and accumulate knowledge and then project that knowledge into the future. That's what fear is. Uh, this ability is one of the greatest gifts that God has given humanity. That, that we're able to collect information pass it along from generation to generation and build and build and build so that we're able to make progress. We are, we're, we are where we are today ultimately because of this ability to accumulate knowledge and to build on that knowledge and to then project that knowledge into the future and actually build on top of that. This is also why we're afraid of clowns. You may not have thought of that, but maybe you're, maybe you're like me and your parents could only afford to send you to the carnival at the Kmart parking lot. You know, the carnival with like the two-story roller coaster that was just on a semi-truck just an hour before. Like, I don't know what they were thinking. But anyway, any carny dressed up like a clown would scare the bejesus out of anybody. And so now you have this knowledge of scary clown. You project that into the future. Ergo, we're afraid of clowns. But, but it's the same ability that, that allows us to fear. It's also the ability that allows us to imagine. It's, it's the same ability that allows us to have hope and to dream. Without this ability, you would not be able to look forward to anything. You'd never be able to say, I can't wait. Because what is I can't wait? I can't wait is a previous accumulation of knowledge about something positive that we're then projecting into a future experience in hope of something positive. It's the same innate God-given ability. But it also creates the possibility of an endless cycle of what ifs. What if my knowledge of the past happens in this current situation? What if my knowledge of what happened in somebody else's past happens now to me in this current situation? I mean, David knows, like, the last time he asked a girl out, it didn't go so well, right? Like, and so, so he's projecting that into the next time. Or for me, like, I remember the last time the Texas Rangers were in the World Series. It didn't go so well. Maybe more serious, no, like, Man, my friend's mom had breast cancer, and she didn't make it. And so now my mom just told me, what if? Like, what if? Or my buddy, he came clean to his wife. All he wanted was to make things better, and he came clean to his wife. She couldn't take it, she left, and now he's alone. Like, I, what if the same thing happens to me? And all that's real. Like, that's real scary stuff, but my guess is, my guess is none of us would trade our ability to hope. None of us would trade our ability to imagine and to dream and to have faith in the future so that we would no longer have the ability to fear. So that means our ability to fear is not going anywhere. Which means we better learn how to keep fear from becoming the boss of us. Ultimately, what I, what I hope you learn today is this, that, that you don't have to be afraid even when there's something to be afraid of. What's really fascinating to me, and I, I hope to try and make it fascinating for you too, is that Jesus said so much about fear. 
But, but what Jesus said about fear, oftentimes people just think, oh, it's just so naive. It's just so naive, which, which makes sense. If the only thing you know about what Jesus had to say about fear, you, you read in isolation. Or maybe the only thing you know about what Jesus says about fear, what the Bible says about fear, is what you've read on a coffee mug or a T-shirt. Uh, then I get it. I understand why that would seem super naive to you. But in reality, so much of Jesus' ministry, especially the time he spent with his 12 closest buddies, was teaching them and then ultimately teaching you and teaching me how to not be afraid. Or better yet, teaching us why we shouldn't be afraid in the first place. Jesus Jesus has a bottom line for fear. It's a really simple one. It's super clear, which is really should be awesome for us, but it's not always because Jesus doesn't explain a lot of things sometimes. And this is kind of his bottom line. Here it is. It's fear not. Just don't do it, right? Like just stop being afraid. And you're probably like me and just like, oh, thanks, Jesus. That's super, super helpful. Or to use our language, Jesus is just saying, hey, don't let fear be the boss of you. Which, of course, is super easy to say. But for a lot of us, let's just be honest, for a lot of us, it's nearly impossible to do. Which actually is the same for his 12 closest friends, his 12 disciples. They they would hear Jesus say over and over and over again, fear not, don't be afraid. Fear not, don't be afraid. Fear not, don't be afraid. And just like you, just like you, they wanted so bad to believe him. They, They wanted so bad to trust him. But they don't understand what that means. We don't understand what that means. How do, you, how do you do that? And honestly, doesn't that just seem a bit naive? Jesus, do you, do you understand what's going on in my life? Well, on one occasion, Jesus, Jesus had just picked his 12 guys. He just chose his 12 disciples. And really what's awesome is there were hundreds of people that followed Jesus around constantly. Everywhere went giant crowd of people that would follow Jesus around. And so he's about to pick the 12 guys that are going to be his disciples. And you might imagine that he took resumes from the few hundred people that are around and went through those resumes and decided to pick the best ones. Well, not so much. That's not really how it worked. These guys, these 12, they wanted to be picked by other people and they never were. So they'd just gone on to work in their family business and now Jesus has decided they're the ones. And so he gets them all together. They're super excited. And they're probably around the campfire that night. And and Jesus says this, okay, guys, let me tell you what's about to happen. This is how it's going to go down. Here's the big picture of what I'm asking of you. I'm going to send you out like sheep among wolves. Now, to us, that just seems like a figure of speech, probably not that big a deal. But in that day, they, they had seen that. They had seen that. They know that doesn't end well. They had seen what happens when you send sheep out among wolves. It's this bloody, gory mess where all that's left is some hooves and some bloody wool. Everything else is gone. They understood that. That was their previous experience. And Jesus said, here's the good news. Here's the good news. Now that you signed on with me, let me tell you what the contract says. You probably should have read it, but you didn't. Here's what it says. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be beaten. And most of you will be brutally executed. But don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And they're all looking at each other and they're like, dude, Bart, did I miss something? Like, what is going on? He said he's going to do what? Yeah, I know. Yeah, my buddy got picked up by a rabbi the other day and all they do is sit at Starbucks and listen to worship music. That sounds better than this. Let's go follow that guy. But yeah, guys, yeah, yeah. He said all that, but then, but then he said, like, hey, don't, don't be afraid. 
Well, not only did throwing in the do not be afraid take away any of their fear, it just didn't even make sense to them. It didn't work with their previous knowledge of what they knew about the past projected on their future. And Jesus, he's, he's quick to realize these things. He understands what's going on. It's, it's, it's not really clicking for him, for them. And so he's like, hey, guys, why don't we, let's go on a field trip. The, the 13 of us will go on a field trip. It'll, it'll help. And, and a lot of you, a lot of you watching, you know what this field trip is. You've, you've heard about this field trip. You've read about this field trip. But you don't really think of it that way because you've only read it as an isolated instance, instance in the life of Jesus and his people. Like you haven't looked at the greater picture. You didn't, you didn't think of it as a field trip because you weren't thinking about all that had happened and taken place before and what Jesus wanted to have happen after. Everything Jesus did was purposeful. It was all connected. He had a purpose. He was going somewhere at all times. And this entire field trip. This entire field trip was set up so that Jesus could teach them a lesson about fear. As soon as I begin telling the story, though, I understand. I, I've been out there. I understand that many of you will want to kind of shut off a little bit, take a little bit of break for a little bit because you think you know the end. But I challenge you to stay with me. Uh, work to try and connect this story with the greater narrative of what Jesus is trying to do. And everything he did, he was working to prepare his followers. He was working to prepare you for the future. He was trying to give them knowledge. He was trying to give them knowledge about him that they could then project into their future. And it starts like this. And Matthew records this for us as well. Matthew's recorded so much of what we've looked at in this series. And he starts right off the bat. He says this. Then they got into a boat and his disciples followed him. It's a little bit of context about Matthew's gospel. Matthew, he didn't write his gospel in chronological order, which is really kind of frustrating when you read it. His writing style kind of jumped between narrative story and kind of discourse and teaching about topics, uh, which can make things seem a little bit disjointed. In fact, if you read through Matthew, Matthew doesn't even tell the story of him being picked up by Jesus as a disciple until after this story, which isn't possible chronologically because he was obviously there. But the best reading of this portion of the gospel, it tells us, that the disciples had just been chosen. They had just been picked up and chosen by Jesus. And, and then Jesus goes off and preaches the best sermon ever to be preached, uh, called the Sermon on the Mount, the like 17-point message that they apparently listened to for hours, uh, and then walk down the mount from which said sermon was preached. And then he begins to heal and help all kinds of people. Uh, but then they want to get out of there. Like, Jesus is ready to get away. And so the disciples understanding of who Jesus is, very fresh, very new to them. I mean, they've seen a few things, but overall, it's still very new to all of them. And so we go on, and suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. And I want you, don't, don't picture like a flannel board, Sunday school picture of this story. They're in a very small boat. It would just been a small fishing boat. So... Not very much room for people to, to find space to, to do anything. And so they're left on this very small boat. They can't see land in either direction because of the darkness and the clouds and the rain. The rain sideways. It's soaking wet. It's so, this isn't a pretty scene, right? The disciples, their hair is wet and matted to their face, and it's loud. Like, you guys have been in a storm. You know when it's wind and rain and thunder. It's just, it's loud. You have to yell everything. And Matthew tells us, and then Peter would tell us later, actually, Peter, who we actually think was probably illiterate, he couldn't read or write. And so he tells his story 
to a guy named Mark, which is why we have Mark's gospel. It's Mark's gospel, but it's Peter's story. And Peter wants us to know, hey, we weren't even the only ones out there. There were other boats with us. We weren't the only ones to see this. This is how it happened. But somehow, somehow Jesus was asleep, which is almost impossible. I, I think he might have been faking. I'm, I'm not... Outside of scripture, this is my own interpretation, right? Like, really? I mean, he's in the stern of this boat. Mark says he's on a cushion. Can you imagine the cushion? It's probably like sopping wet. Like, I don't think he was sleeping. I think he had a plan. But that's, again, you, just, you, you do your own interpretation. I don't know how in the world somebody could be sleeping. Jesus is laying down, soaking wet. The rain is pouring. It's roaring. The storm is going on. And then they went and woke him up. And again, this isn't like how you wake up your favorite child. Like, honey, hey, it's time to wake up. This is the disciples. I mean, it's loud and they're scared and they're screaming, hey, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And I just imagine, again, because I don't think he was asleep, pops right up on his elbow, looking around, and he yells, you of little faith. And Matthew's like, what? What? I've got hair in my face? No, no, no. You of little faith. And then he proceeds to ask what has to be the most ridiculous question. Why are you so afraid? And I don't know how they answered him. I don't know if they answered him, but I, I would assume in their head it was something like, um, well, we're afraid because there's this furious storm, waves pouring into the boat, and based on our previous knowledge of what happens when water gets in a boat, People drown. We're afraid because we might drown. Then he finally stands up, right? He stands up, and he didn't panic. I hope that's encouraging to you. He didn't panic. God doesn't panic. Your, your heavenly Father isn't panicking. But we panic. But we panic because we're projecting our previous knowledge into the future into our future experiences and our future thoughts of what might come. But God, he doesn't panic. This is what Jesus wanted them to see, and perhaps this is what Jesus wants you to see. He got up, and he rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was calm. But this, this isn't a miracle story to show us that Jesus has power over nature, which is true. He he absolutely does have power over nature. But that wasn't the point of this field trip. He's teaching them, and ultimately he's teaching us about fear. And here's what almost always happens. This almost always gets missed. Jesus has done the most unimaginable thing to them in their presence. That He had just done something that they couldn't even fathom prior to that moment. And Matthew tells us the men were amazed. And I'm like, fine, thanks, Matthew. I, that. If that's the word you chose to use, I'm not going to tell you you were wrong. But amazed to me is like when a 5'7 dude dunks or something. That's amazing. Or when Altuve hits a home run, the little guy can hit a home run. That's amazing that he can do that. This is just like, I don't know, not quite the same word that I was thinking of. When Peter, again, when he's sharing his story with Mark, and Mark's writing it down, and Mark's like, are you sure you want me to, that's what you want me to say? Okay, I'll put it down. He described it this way. He said, and they were filled with great fear. In fact, a direct translation of the Greek is he uses the same word twice in that little sentence. He says, we feared a great fear. 
It's almost like Peter, he's telling Mark, dude, I don't know what to say. Like, we were scared. Like, we were scared, scared. And then we were more scared. Like, we were scared of the storm because we thought we were going to drown. And then we were scared because we realized who we were in the boat with. We feared a great fear. And then, (laughs) then they ask the perfect question. In fact, they asked what I believe to be the most important question to ever be asked. This, this question, if you're not a follower of Jesus, or maybe you were a part of the church at one point, and then you walked away, maybe you're trying to figure this whole thing out, or maybe you've had zero desire to care anything about this Jesus story, you don't even know why you're here. Well, this is the question that should be asked. In that moment, in that moment, they were asking, whose presence are we in? They said, The men were amazed. They they feared a great fear. And they asked, what kind of man is this? They asked the question. You see, like, all the existential questions about, you know, the universe and, you know, how old the universe is, billions of years old or thousands of years old or who created the world. Those are all great conversations, but they're not the question. They asked the question, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And in that moment, in that moment, the fear of whose presence they were in overwhelmed the fear they had just experienced in the storm. They, they realized who they were in the boat with and they couldn't get away. Like you can't get far enough away when you're that scared. And for a moment, for a fleeting moment, their confidence in Jesus overwhelmed their fear. For a moment, standing in that boat, in that moment, their confidence in who Jesus was, their confidence in what Jesus was capable of, overwhelmed any fear they might have in their circumstances. In other words, the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach them was simply this, that when you're with me, you don't have to be afraid, even when there's something to be afraid of. When you're with me, you don't have to allow fear to be the boss of you anymore. You don't have to allow fear to overwhelm you because there's something more overwhelming than than your fear. You don't have to allow fear to become the centerpiece of your life because there's something more capable. There's something more powerful than your fear. So then they they get back, right? They get to the other side and they kind of get back into the business of life. And they're just a few days down the road. At least the best reading of this passage. They're not far from it. This is still fresh on their mind. And Jesus comes back around to this idea And he's like, hey, okay, let's talk about this field trip we just went on. Uh, You all failed, but that's okay. Uh, uh, It it didn't go so well, uh, but everybody has a lesson to be learned. Everybody failed, but let me me tell you this in a different way. Let me give you a new illustration, uh, one that, that you might understand a little bit better, an illustration from nature. And he says this, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. What I love about what Jesus is saying right here, and I'm I'm not trying to add anything to what Jesus said. He doesn't need me to add anything to what he said. But I think the idea is don't be afraid of anything that can kill your body. Don't be afraid of any circumstances, any dangers, any sickness that can kill your body, but it can't kill your soul. Rather, if you're going to be afraid of something, you might as well be afraid of something worth being afraid of. Be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Jesus was saying, hey, don't you remember 
Don't you remember that boat ride? It was just a few days ago. You were afraid of the wrong thing. He goes on, are not two sparrows sold for a penny to which they would have understood? Yeah, they, they are. They're, I mean, they're pretty much worthless. Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care because he sees and he knows. And even the very hairs on your head, which is becoming easier for him now for me, are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth far more than many sparrows. This was saying that, yes, God is a personal God. God knows your name. God knows what's going on in our personal lives, and he cares. It's not just knowledge. It's that he actually cares, even when things aren't going well for us. When we would say things are bad for us, he knows and he cares, and we can trust him. They were finally starting to get it. And so he, he did the only thing he could think of. He, he went ahead and signed them up for another field trip because he's like, maybe this one will get them. And so this time around, you, you know the story too. Like this one starts off pretty well. So, so they're, they're there at this field trip and, and Jesus is preaching and there's like 5,000 plus men and women there. Like it's, it's crazy crowd. And Jesus goes a little bit long. And so the disciples come up and they're like, hey, Jesus, um, we had planned for 35 minutes, and you've gone seven hours. So we probably, we probably need to let these people go home because they're hungry. And Jesus is like, well, here's your opportunity. Why don't, why don't you feed them? And you know the story, at least a little bit of it. Like, they do that. <laughs> they take a little boy's, you know, Lunchable, and they split it up. And then by the end of it, they've got leftovers. And, and this, at this point, the 12, like, man, they're thinking pretty highly of themselves. Like, did you see what we just did? And she's like, you didn't do a dang thing, by the way. Before your head gets too big, get out of here. Like, you need to go. And so it goes on, and, and Jesus, immediately Jesus made the disciples get in the boat. And I love the word for made in, in the original Greek. Is, is he forced them. He forced them. He coerced them. He pushed them physically to get into the boat. And why did he have to force them to get in the boat? Well, because they remember what happened last time they were in the boat. They're taking their previous knowledge of what has happened and they're putting it on their current circumstances. They're like, we're not getting in a boat with you. And so Jesus is like, fine, don't, I won't get in the boat. Just go. Go on ahead. Go on ahead and I'll dismiss the crowd. I'll let them go. So he made them get in. He pushes them off. He waves goodbye. He stands there. Now keep in mind, this is just after dinner. That's the assumption, right? Well, hours later, Hours later, they're at a standstill, and Mark actually tells us in his gospel, or Peter tells Mark in his gospel, that, that they've been rowing for probably three to four miles, which seems like a lot to me. But they're in this headwind, and they're not moving anymore. And then, remember, they just left at dinner, and now shortly before dawn, shortly before dawn, that's a long time. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And if you're skeptical, if you're skeptical about faith, there are times, and there are plenty of them, where I'm like, yeah, I kind of get it. This, this could be one of them. Like, sure, the guy walked on water. But I'll tell you, like, Christians, followers of Jesus, hey, we don't believe that Jesus walked on the water because of a Sunday school class. We don't believe that Jesus walked on the water simply because the Bible tells us so. It's so much bigger than that. It's so much more powerful than that. It goes so much deeper than that. We believe it because Matthew, who was there, he tells us about it. 
And we believe it because when Peter was telling Mark, he's like, no, dude, I know it sounds insane, but this is what happened. Peter was there, and he tells us about it. And John, who was there, he writes about it, and he tells us. And all three were actually there. They were eyewitnesses. And here's the crazy part. They report their embarrassing responses to it, which there's this literary device, which I can't remember the word of. I should have figured that out first. But anyway, it's this idea that when people are writing a story, they don't make the, the hero look bad. They, they'd never write embarrassing details about the hero because they wouldn't do anything to make the hero look bad. And so if they were making up this story, they would have never put embarrassing details in there. Like you may not think that's a big deal. It may not be a big deal for a lot of you. It's a big deal for me. Because as I, as I struggle with reading through the Gospels and I want to believe and I want to know if it's true or not, I like the things that help me know that they're true. And this is one of them. There have been all kinds of critics who have done literary studies who have decided by the time they run into this, by the time they run into the fact that these heroes of the story are telling embarrassing facts about themselves, it makes them wonder. And they question, they say this has to be true, and they change their minds. That's why this is a big deal. Because they go on, when the disciples saw him walking on the water, they didn't say, oh, I knew he was coming. <laughs> I knew he'd do that. No, they say we were terrified. We were scared to death. Because we didn't believe it was him. We thought it was a ghost. And they cried out in fear. You don't write that about a hero if it's not true. Peter's just telling Mark, Man, I know we sounded dumb. Like, I know what we just saw. But that's, that's what happened. And Jesus immediately says to them, take courage at his eye. Do not be afraid. Which I'm like, I don't know what he was expecting when he walked out there, but I would assume that they were going to be afraid. And he's like, guys, how many times, how many times do I have to tell you? We've done sermons about this, guys. Like, I've shown you a few miracles. We've gone on a few field trips. You're still not figuring it out. As long as I'm here, as long as I'm here, as long as I know what's going on in your life, and by the way, as long as I care, which I do, even though there's something to be afraid of, you don't have to allow fear to control you. You don't have to allow fear to be the boss of you. But once again, and this, this should give you encouragement, it encourages me, it didn't stick. Like, everything they'd seen, everything they'd seen and been through and done and watched, it, it still didn't stick. They feared right up until the end. See, at the end of Jesus' ministry, you, you probably know this part. He's on his way to Jerusalem, right? They're all following along. They're going with him because they went everywhere. They had just raised one of Jesus' best friends from the dead, Lazarus. That had just happened. And they're on their way to Jerusalem. They're thinking, man, this is it. This has got to be it. It's finally going to happen. What we've been waiting for is going to happen. They get to Jerusalem, and the crowds are screaming in the streets. They've got these palm branches. They're laying them down at his feet. They're singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then it gets weird. They turn it political, and they're like, people are trying to make him king, and he doesn't, he's not going to be king, at least not the way they think he's going to be king. And, but they hang out in Jerusalem for about a week. They're, they're seeing all this go on. The, the disciples are getting super excited because they think what is about to happen is what they've been thinking was going to happen the whole time. And Jesus says, okay. They, they, they get up in the room for the Passover meal, and Jesus says, okay, listen carefully, guys. Here's, here, John, John, go and write this down. Uh, I'm going to establish a new covenant. And they're like, sweet, I knew it. I knew he was going to do it. I'm going to establish a new covenant. I'm going to establish a new relationship between God and men. And they're loving it. They're like, this is exactly what we thought was coming. And, and then Jesus says, and I've already told you, I've already told you that 
I'm going to start a new movement. I'm going to start a new movement. My ecclesia, my, my gathering, my, my church, my people, and I've told you this too. This is the truth. Nothing can stop it. Nothing will stand against it, and it's just feeding into what they already thought to be true, that he was going to take over, and nothing could stop it. Oh, man, here it comes. They're just glad they didn't quit early, right, with the whole wolves and sheep thing. Like, Jesus goes on, you know the law. You grew up with the law. Like, that's all you've ever lived by. Well, I'll tell you this. I'm coming with a new command. This is a new law. And they always knew the Messiah would bring a new law. And so now they're starting to figure it out. This is what we've been waiting for. Uh, He's going to make himself king, and we're going to be the king's guys. And they're excited. And later that night, Jesus was arrested. (laughs) And that didn't fit. Like, that doesn't fit the narrative or story that they were playing out. And, and now, now they're, they're taking their, their previous held knowledge of what happens when a, when a rabbi gets arrested and they're placing that on their current circumstances because when a rabbi got re- arrested, their disciples were going with him at some point. And so they're just, they're just taking their, their previous knowledge, they're placing it in their current circumstances and they have nothing left to do but panic and hide and they lie and they deny and they watch Jesus be crucified. That doesn't... That doesn't make any sense. And afterward, they felt that all that they had believed, everything they had experienced was for nothing. Along with everything Jesus had taught them, all that he had claimed about himself, for nothing. However, three days later, these same cowards, the ones that ran and hid and lied and denied him. These, these men who were filled with fear, they peered into an empty tomb. Later, they, they had breakfast on the beach with their resurrected friend and rabbi, and it clicked for them. It clicked for them. They said, you know what? We're back in business. We're back in business. Because Jesus' resurrection for them, it punctuated everything he taught about himself. Everything he said about himself. Things that made no sense before, they make sense now. Especially what he had to say about fear. You see, for us, for you and I, the resurrection is about Easter, right? We, we think about it as a, as a nice spring day once a year. But for the first century believers, it was everything. It, it was their entire sense of strength and courage and boldness. Jesus' resurrection validated everything he said about himself. It proved everything he said could be trusted. The world was certainly it's still a scary place. That's nothing new. They, they knew that, but they no longer needed to be afraid. In fact, for the first time, for the first time, they feared not. They, they, they feared not. They, they came out of hiding. They, they faced the very men that had taken their rabbi, that had taken Jesus and arrested him and flogged him and crucified him. Then they went out and they changed the world. Fear not changed the world. They had lost their fear. Of death. Here's one of the other reasons why I can't help but believe what the gospels say is to be true. Because these very same men, these men who just days earlier ran and hid and lied and did everything they could to not be found out. These same men, three days later, for some reason, you have to decide what the reason was. You have to decide what the reason was. For some reason, they were emboldened. They were emboldened. They feared not. They went out and changed the world. They were ready to be arrested and to be beaten and to be executed. For what? Because they saw 
Because they saw, they didn't read a story in a book. They saw him. And so their knowledge of who he was, their knowledge of what he had done, they projected that onto their current circumstances and their future circumstances, and they no longer had fear. What, what would have caused them fear in the past has now been overwhelmed by what has actually taken place. Their accumulated knowledge of Jesus and what he had done would always, would always overwhelm their fear of what's to come. And so that's really my question for you. It's the same question. What, what's your previous knowledge about what God has done that you can project into your current and future circumstances? You see, our ability to fear, as well as our ability to hope and to believe and to have faith, is based on our ability to remember. So what do you remember? What do you remember about what God has done? And, and maybe some of the pushback, and I get it, is I don't remember anything. Maybe you, you think you've never experienced anything. But here's my challenge for you when it comes to fear. Any of us who struggle with fear, create a, a fear journal, which I try to think of something not negative to call it, but that's what it is. Create this journal. And what I want you to write in it is I am really scared. I, I am scared to death. Here are the circumstances. Here's what's going on in my life. Here's how I feel about it. Here's how I feel like it's going to end up. I, I, I have no hope. And in that moment, well, this, this is, again, this is a challenge for everybody. You don't have to follow Jesus to do this, but it's worth a shot if you don't know him. Pray about it. I mean, you might think you're just saying words to the ceiling, but I, I just give it, give it a chance. See what happens. Say, God, this is really what's going on in my life. This is really how I feel. What are you going to do about it? Can you help me in this? Pray about it. Peter, Peter who failed both boat rides, Peter who panicked during Jesus' arrest, Peter who lied when a little girl asked him if, she, if he knew Jesus. This same Peter, years later, after the resurrection, he's writing to people like you. He's, he's writing to people like me, people who have believed but have not seen. And he says this, cast all your cares on him. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. This literally means transfer all your worry to him. You don't have to carry it anymore. Peter should know he experienced and faced more than we would ever be able to ima imagine. And still his confidence, his confidence in what Jesus had already done in the past, overwhelmed and defeated his fear in his current circumstances. And then finally, celebrate the victories. Celebrate the victories. Write them in that same journal so you can go back. If, if we're able to be confident in God's ability to see us through our current situation, we have to be able to look back and see what he's done in our past situations. We have to be able to take the knowledge of his past victories Take the knowledge of his past victories and place them into our future and current situations. It's this knowledge, this knowledge of what God has done in the past and placing it on our current circumstances that allows us to say along with the psalmist this, that yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fear, you're not the boss of me. Besides, I already have a boss. I already have a boss. And my boss, he conquered life and he defeated death and, and he is who he claimed to be and he's worthy of my worship and he's worthy of my trust. And the life of Jesus is an invitation and a promise. It's an invitation to follow and to fear not, even when there's something to be afraid of. He says to you and he says to me, I am with you and I care.
And so for any of us in the room who have yet to place our faith in him, and I challenge you, like, I, I think you can try and figure some of this out. You can cope with fear in some way. But, man, the promise is there that he is there to take from you your worry and fear, for you to place it upon him, to cast it upon him. We experience that ability by confessing our need for him, by declaring the fact that we trust that he's the only one capable of forgiving us anyway, and then asking him, Jesus, would you forgive me of my sin, and would you lead my life? Would you pray with me, church? If you've yet to place your faith in Jesus, and you can do so by praying a prayer just like this with me. You can say the sentences in your head. You can say whatever you want in your head. But it starts this way. Just say, Jesus, first off, I know you love me. And Jesus, I confess my need for a Savior because of my sin. And I declare that you are the only one capable to forgive so, Jesus, I ask, would you be the forgiver of my sins and the leader of my life? God, I thank you for what you've spoken over these past five weeks. God, it's been my prayer. It will continue to be my prayer that there's something, one, one sentence from this five weeks, whatever it is, that somebody can grab a hold of and implement in their lives so that they can fight against allowing emotions to have control over their lives that they would then know fully that you were the only one worthy to have control and that they would place that control in your hands. God, I know that five weeks is a long time and next week we're on to something else and I'm fine with that. But I pray that you would use what has been spoken over these five weeks. Use your words from scripture to have impact on people's hearts and allow lives to be forever changed. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.